Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. All right, we have a lot to get into in today's episode. We are going to be talking about the American Horror Story double feature Red Tide premiere. And as I am recording this, it is early on Wednesday. So I am not currently up to date with the newest episode that happened, but we're going to be talking about the first two episodes. And I have some crazy theories based off the episode and the teasers we've seen. We'll get into that. And that dark Bob Ross documentary, did you see that? I was shook. So when I started taking my streaming news notes, that's a hard one to say, it started off really light. I'm like, oh, okay. Like I'll just discuss some other things as well. Oh no, 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 no. The new news has completely taken off. I'm talking some crazy, crazy, crazy news. Like not just one, but two additions to two separate major horror franchises are coming to stream it. One is coming a bit later and the other is coming sooner than you'd think. I also have some trailers here for one major Netflix show that's coming back for its third season. And I also have a trailer for a movie that you may not have heard of, but you've definitely heard of The Star. If you are not a fan of psychological horror, you will not like the trailer, but if you do, you'll be so into it, your anxiety will be through the roof. Oh, and I am sipping on that new new apple crisp macchiato from Starbucks. And I think I might have an unpopular opinion about it. We'll see. Stay tuned. We're getting into it right now. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now on with the show. So about this apple crisp macchiato from Starbucks, when I saw this, I was super excited because I love anything apple and I thought this would be a perfect fall drink that switches up the mundane pumpkin routine. And I'm so fucking stupid. I forgot with macchiatos, it's all separated, which is totally fine. I get the layers of flavors, but the apple crisp syrup is like stuck at the bottom. And if you don't have a straw or a spoon, if you're just drinking this on the go, there's no way to stir it. And at first I didn't mind because because it gives it like just a hint of that apple. And I enjoyed that. And the drink is okay. It's all right. It's definitely not the all-star raving I'm seeing all over the internet. Let me explain myself. I have recently found a new love and that new love is Aroma Joe's. When I tell you, and let me be explicit here for a moment because you know, that's what we do here. We get fucking explicit. When I tell you that this coffee is strong, I'm telling you that your will smell like freshly brewed fucking coffee. And that's the way it should be. The strength is there and the flavors are absolutely unreal. And if you think Starbucks has endless possibilities with like the secret menu recipes, huh, Aroma Joe's, man, they completely kick Starbucks to the curb in quality, in diversity, overall friendliness and cleanliness. From Aroma Joe's, I have been obsessed with the Paris Toast Latte, which has notes of maple and brown sugar and shortbread and also the sticky bun flavor. Holy shit, I love sticky bun flavor anything or like cinnamon rolls, you know? It's a bit expensive at Aroma Joe's, but it is so worth it. And 
the flavor, it's hard to explain because you taste coffee, high quality coffee first and foremost, but there are undertones of those flavors. It's not just straight syrup because that's what the apple crisp macchiato tasted like to me. Like the syrup was doing all of the work. So you are going to Starbucks, not for coffee, but for the apple crisp flavor. At Aroma Joe's, you are going for the high quality coffee and it just so happens that you'll get a sprinkle of whatever flavor you want because they have endless options. They also have energy drinks and shit. I haven't tried those yet maybe one day, but I am just unimpressed with Starbucks as of late because the bar has been set so high. But overall, the apple crisp macchiato, is it good? Yeah, it's good. I got the iced one. I think it's probably better hot, you know, on a colder day. I probably won't get it again. I probably will only go to Starbucks for different, you know, new flavors or dunks for, you know, some of their Halloween stuff. But if I'm going just day to day, and want a coffee that's high quality and delicious and not just trying to, you know, taste test, it's definitely gonna be Aroma Joe's. But now that my body is decently caffeinated, let's get into American Horror Story. Like I said earlier, as of recording, it is early on Wednesday, so I haven't seen the third episode yet, but we are going to get into the two that have been released. And yes, there will be spoilers. If you have not seen it and you want to see it, check the timestamps in the description. That way, if you don't want something spoiled, you can just skip right through and know exactly where to go next. If you did not know, this season of American Horror Story is called Double Feature, meaning there will be two parts. Ryan Murphy explained that one part will be by the sea and the other by the sand. There will be six episodes of Red Tide by the sea and four episodes of Death Valley by the sand. We don't have many details about Death Valley, but we can almost definitely assume that based off the new clip that teases the series second chapter, the last four episodes that make up Death Valley will be about extraterrestrial life on Earth, which if you're an American Horror Story fan, big time fan, and you remember Asylum, this is what we've been waiting for, but we'll get into that later. We're also gonna get into the whole two worlds colliding, how the chapters intersect, because I have my theories on that as well. I am going to start by reading the description of the two episodes from Variety because they are just so much better at giving every little detail. And as I'm reading it, I'm going to interject with my thoughts as well if I have any other, you know, roads I want to go down. In the first episode of Kate Fear, the first thing that I noticed, and apparently the author of the Variety article did as well, was the tone. The color palette was just absolutely beautiful and it really set the mood. So before any words are even said, you are immediately transported into Cape Cod. The episode starts off with the Gardner family, dad Harry, pregnant mom Doris, and daughter Alma, arriving in the seaside town of Providence, Mass? Uh Uh-uh, it's Provincetown, baby. So quick little correction there. Providence is Rhode Island. That's a about three hours south of Provincetown. Alma had been counting roadkill, of which there appeared to be an abundance. A mangled deer they happened upon definitely looked like it had been feasted upon rather than hit by a car. Already we know that this town is weird and this little girl is a little bit eccentric and odd as well, which is validated later on. Caretaker Martha welcomed the gardeners to their new home, which was in poor shape to say the least. Harry told Martha that he is a screenwriter currently working on a TV pilot and Doris was charged with redecorating the house in exchange for three months rent-free. Martha, 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 Martha. She had the most painful accent. Basically, every New England trope you could possibly imagine was thrown into the first few minutes of this episode. And I think it was funny, like I'm almost positive it was done on purpose, but it was so cringe to listen to that accent. I was like, oh, you sound like Mac Wahlberg. As Harry walked to the market to stock up on food, he noticed the houses all had red lights coming on outside as the sun went down. Keep that in mind. That's very important when we get into theories. 
Then he ran into Tuberculosis Karen, which is Sarah Paulson's craziest role yet, in my opinion, in the best way. But he runs into Tuberculosis or TB Karen at the grocery store, who started screaming at him to get out of town before they munch on his bones. Despite the grocery clerk passing her off as a nutter, given what we know about the franchise, TB Karen is probably onto something. Not too deterred, Harry and the family proceeded to settle in. He seems to be having some serious trouble writing his screenplay and his daughter, who is borderline neurotic, but we'll go with a nicer word, perfectionist, I think suits this well, obsessively plays her viola, which is a great distraction to her father and not in a good way. The opening titles this season also seem to pay homage to The Shining with blood dripping intercut with typewriter images, which seems very appropriate. I loved the intro. I thought it was unique and one of the best from the franchise. Doris and Alma went for a stroll to get out of the house and happened by a cemetery where a very creepy man began chasing them. He was pale, tall, had pointy teeth and followed them all the way home, banging on the windows and leering at the family. The gardeners called the police and Chief Burleson sort of rolls her eyes and blamed the addicts in town. One thing I did catch on to was there was a shoe print that the police chief saw and gave sort of this no look. I don't know. Seemed a little sketchy to me. I also thought the drug use was a very interesting addition uh, to the season because opioid abuse is huge down the Cape. I know Ryan Murphy actually has a home in P-Town, so I'm sure he understands that and he knows the Cape very well. In the course of talking to the chief, it came up that a family was murdered in a nearby town. Harry looked up the details. Their throats were torn out in an animalistic massacre, according to the newspaper article found. So this is very jarring to the family. Something is obviously not quite right. The next day, Harry went for a run and he came upon two bodies with their intestines ripped out. So adding to the uh, weirdness and the, hmm, maybe something isn't right aspect of this place. Obviously he calls the police and the medical examiner, being the great medical examiner that he was, said, oh, it was the great white shark that did this. Unlikely, but you know, here we are. Back at the house, Doris started throwing up and craving red meat. She rightly observed that she's a bit too far along for morning sickness. Doris is very, very, very pregnant, as we see in the show. And with all the cannibalistic nods happening so far, clearly this crazy ass town has infected her with something. I am very curious to see how this baby comes out and how it was infected so quickly. Did something prick her and get in her bloodstream? Is it just airborne? I highly doubt that based off everything we've seen, but I think her birth will be a jaw dropper for sure. Harry went out to dinner by himself because of his wife's ailment. And there we are introduced to Austin and Belle, AKA Evan Peters and Francis Conroy, a deadly duo. We love them. They were serenely singing Islands in the Stream, which my heart, probably the greatest moment in American Horror Story history just absolutely superb. Everything I never knew I needed was in this pair. Francis Conroy and Black Lipstick is a total vibe and Evan Peters' character was typical Evan Peters' perfection. Throw some eyeliner on and smack a sassy little attitude on him and his character is gold every time. Back at the house with Doris and Alma, one of the creepy men that was chasing them got through a window and Harry had to fight him off and actually beat him to death with a fireplace stand. The local EMTs and police came and cleaned it up like it was nothing and Harry vowed that they were leaving in the morning. In the morning, not right that second, in the morning. Fair enough. It's a typical horror trope of being a moron and not leaving right away. Very annoying, but you know, this is horror. Not everyone can be Jordan Peele. 
Meanwhile, Belle took Mickey home for a romp. And Mickey uh, is the character played by Macaulay Culkin. Apparently, Belle wanted to suck his blood. She then goes on to reveal her pointy teeth that we have seen many a times in the teasers and started uh, sucking on his arm. So Belle, uh, a vampire, I'm going to call them vampires. I understand that that's not the actual term, like the gaga term from hotel, but uh, that's what they seem like to me. They call them bloodsuckers and like, yeah, a fucking vampire. Maybe it's a different breed. If they change the name, sure, then I'll call them something different. But for now, they're vampires. Outside the bar, tuberculosis Karen got a phone call telling her she had three hours to do something. She begged not to have to do it, but the phone voice was insistent. There we cut to TB Karen bringing a baby to Belle Noir. Yes, the vampire lady. Yes, Francis Conroy. A baby in a bag handing it to this vampire. So we obviously know what happens there. This season is already nuts off the first episode. The next morning before the gardeners could leave, Austin called Harry and summoned him into his bougie mansion on the seas. And he dangles some black pills in front of Harry, telling him they'd help him unleash his inner writer. But Harry wasn't having it. He left and went home. As soon as he got home, his agent, Ursula, played by the incredible Leslie Grossman, basically ordered him to stay in Provincetown and get his pilot written. Obviously, Harry's taking those orders to heart and started popping the pills he found in his pocket. Obviously, Austin snuck him in there knowing that he'd want to take them later. And all this is happening as Alma, the daughter, watches from the stairway. And that ends the first episode, Cape Fear. Pretty epic episode, but I'm glad we had two. In the second episode of the premiere, the drugs kicked in and Harry needed to write immediately. So the family, who was already packed up and ready to leave in the car, were not going anywhere. Harry finished his pilot in four hours and Alma told her mom that she saw him take something. Obviously, to a grown-up, this sounds like drugs, which it might be. We don't know. Technically, I guess it is. Doris ended up questioning him and he snapped at her and Alma. Whatever those little black pills were, they turned him not only into a creative genius, but also a dickhead. By the next morning, Harry had finished the second episode of his new show and Doris calls him out on being an asshole and having no appetite. Clear indications for drug use, right? Cocaine, maybe? So he went to the market for a snack only to come upon the creepy pale-faced dude feasting on a squirrel. More weirdness. Suddenly, he was surrounded by all of the pale faces like a pack of wild dogs, but they ended up sensing something in him that made them back off, we presume, from the pills. I think that's a fair assumption. At the market, Harry was salivating over raw beef, so he bought a ton of it, went home and squeezed the blood, we'll get into that in a second, into a pitcher and then drank it. Now, I'm pretty sure the red juice from raw meat isn't blood though. Like I'm almost certain. So I'm gonna look this up because I just caught this in my notes and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not blood. So let's take a look. Red juice from raw meat. I don't, yeah, no, it's not actually blood, but rather a protein called myoglobin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's according to BuzzFeed. The protein is what gives the meat and its juices a red hue. It's perfectly normal to find it in packaging. What's more, the red juice that oozes from your medium rare steak isn't blood either. Maybe the myoglobin wasn't enough and he needed something more grotesque. Something a bit more gym tan laundry, you know what I'm saying? So naturally he pureed the beef into liquid and drank it. He, he drank that too. 
like a man because it's a man smoothie of raw meat. Meanwhile, as he's Jim tan laundrying, I don't know why I associate it with that. Like maybe because like super macho man, raw meat, all of those stupid fucking stereotypes. Meanwhile, his perfectionist of a daughter was wondering what would happen if she took one of daddy's magic pills. Flash to the morning, Doris the mom, chopping vegetables, arguing about when they can leave P-Town, and that's when she cut herself. And Harry, like a rabid fucking animal, sucked on her wound like this little knife wound until he was hurting her, which obviously freaked them both out. So Harry went to Austin, naturally, to demand what the fuck was in these pills that made him almost bite his wife's finger off. And it turns out the drugs were manufactured by someone local. And if an average Joe takes one, they become a pale, creepy guy like the ones walking around town. But people with creative talent need it to keep creating. They also, in addition to continuously taking the pills to have the creative genius, They need to keep feeding on fresh blood. So obviously Harry's freaked out by this and he told Doris they would leave the very next day. But then he got a call from his agent, Ursula. She informed him that Netflix wanted a deal with him based on his show. Suddenly, of course, because that's how it goes, Harry couldn't write anymore. So back to Austin, he went for some more little black pills. Austin and Belle Noir were happy to oblige him. He only needed one more. No, just one more. This is the last time and Belle made a very pointed commentary about fame of any kind by telling him there's nothing more addictive than success. You taste it now and you're never going to be able to live without it. After giving him a reality check, they took him out to eat. How lovely. What good friends. They showed up at a hotel room. Belle wasted no time slitting the kid's throat and they all fed on him like a buffet. Harry felt some initial guilt at first, but not enough to stop. He even goes as far as getting his teeth sharpened by a dentist slash tattoo artist played by Billy Lord. So he definitely had no plans of stopping the feeding. Alma, the daughter, was at home. She's playing her viola. She's struggling and decided she's had enough and she has decided she needs one of daddy's magic pills. Sure enough, a little while later, she played flawlessly before she collapsed on the floor. This has some adverse effects for children, it would seem. She got back up, started playing again. The mom comes down and she's like, you gotta give it a break, you've been playing for hours. And Alma snapped at her because again, these pills seemingly turn people into assholes, saying, you don't understand greatness, mom. And the little girl suddenly didn't wanna leave Provincetown. And then little Miss Alma said she would still be great even if she was raised by some other ordinary woman. Obviously, Doris is upset by this, freaks out and sends Alma to her room and cried. So she's got two dickheads under her roof. By the end of the episode, Harry was running along the beach and just casually killed a man to feed on. I don't know if he stumbled upon him or if they were meeting up. I think they were meeting up. I can't quite remember. So he is all in on his vampire tendencies. When he heads back home, Doris is freaking out because Alma must have snuck out. Harry's saying you're being irrational and hysterical and she's probably just, you know, taking a walk. Doris was not amused with this and said, me and Alma are leaving without you right away. Doris took off looking for Alma and found her precious angel of a daughter in the cemetery they were at the beginning of the first episode, having a little snackety snack, sucking her teeth into a small animal. And that's where we leave off episode two, titled Pale. So some additional thoughts on these episodes. I thought vampires was a weird move from sirens, which was what everyone's expectations were. Literally everyone who was speculating 
knew or thought they knew that this was going to be based around sirens. I do understand the vampire drug metaphor. It's nothing new. We've seen it a million times before. It's not super creative, but I do feel like this is a very interesting take. The nucleus of vampire drug metaphor has been done a gazillion times before, but the rest of the cell is very creative and I'm into it. I also love the little black mystery pill that sparks creativity. That's brilliant. I love that whole idea. I'm curious to know how it will coincide with aliens. I have my theories. Based on one of the teaser trailers we have seen, Death Valley seems to take place in both the present and the past. So adding that little puzzle to the clue helps. Actually, you know what? I'm feeling like I want to break this trailer down. It reveals potentially a lot. We see sand with a lighthouse. And this is teaser number four, I think. You'll know it as I'm explaining it. Maybe you haven't seen it, but it definitely gives a lot away. And I go full tinfoil hat with American Horror Story. And I look at every detail because I think Ryan Murphy's a genius. And there is no detail too small. Everything has to mean something, in my opinion. So we start off seemingly with a small opening scene, sand with a lighthouse, and we see the sea crashing against it. I think that's actually a critical detail. I feel like the lighthouse represents a part of the cape known as the dunes. We see part of this in the beginning of the first episode from the larger shots of the landscape as they drive into P-Town. The dunes actually had an unsolved murder with theories tied to an extra in a Jaws film. It's actually really wild. It's a cool story to look into if you're into unsolved crimes. And Jaws was already being referenced in the show already, just outright in conversation, but also in a less aggressive way. And funnily enough, the dunes are also referred to as Death Valley down the Cape. In the next scene, we see vampires from Red Tide back to back with an alien, red bulbs crashing into one another, morphing into headlights, and then we see the deer in headlights. We also see a human skull focused in on the teeth, transforming regular teeth to sharpened teeth. Obviously, that references the first two episodes we've already seen that. The next scene that I thought was interesting in the teaser was these aliens in the water morphing into sharks. It's a blink and you'll miss it moment. I was watching this on 0.25, so I was very, very invested. And that was something I missed watching at full speed. So tapping into that Jaws theme again. Then we see the aliens running through the dunes and another shot of an alien turning its head. I zoomed into the reflection of his eyes because again, I'm crazy. I couldn't see much. I think it was potentially the landscape of the dunes. The next part of the teaser I thought was the most informative. The aliens and vampires are circling one another. The alien was sticking his tongue out with a little black ball, possibly a variation of the little black pill. But the vampire was a pale face or whatever they call them. Coincidentally, that's what the werewolves call the Cullens and Twilight. But you know, again, whatever they are, bloodsuckers, whatever knockoff version of a vampire they may be referred to. But this vampire had clearly taken a pill already and lacked the creative prowess to become a genius like Belle in Austin and just became a pale face vampire. Yet the vampire took the ball from the alien, tongue to tongue, I might add, in typical Ryan Murphy fashion, make it creepy and and sexy. Then we see a spotlight appearing on the dunes, I presume like a UFO spotlight, and little black pills flowing across a red surface that morphs into yet another red light bulb. Two vampires seemingly on an operation table under, you guessed it, red light bulbs. Lots of red light bulbs. Then another very informative piece, we see a flash of the aliens operating on a meat viola, clearly a nod to Alma. An angry vampire being dragged into the ocean by aliens with their claw marks in the dune sand. 
flip that, we see an alien being carried by a vampire under the spotlight of, again, what we presume is a UFO and flashes of aliens looking possibly scared. It seems like they're scared. Then we see that same alien being held in the vampire's arms dead. And the vampire grins happily at this. We fade to yet another red light bulb and then it flashes into this vampire alien spinning, morphing into one sort of scene. It seemed like it was comparing the two rather than contrasting, which I thought was really interesting. Then the two are possibly making out on the dunes, flash to another red light bulb, and it ends with an angry alien washed up on shore. That was a lot of information. We can assume red light bulbs, whatever they signify in Red Tide is going to have a big influence on the entire season. All I know is I hope we see Kit Walker come back and if he doesn't, I will be severely disappointed because Asylum left us with that ending so long ago and we need some closure. I am really excited for this double feature season. I think it's unique and it's beautiful. I can't wait to see more of Leslie Grossman and Evan Peters, of course, because they bring a lot of humor to this very dark season. There's a lot of really deep and draining topics being talked about, aside from it being, you know, visually dark as well, which, you know, can be sort of a a drag on us. They bring that comedic relief that we desperately need. On the topic of American Horror Story, I watched almost every episode of American Horror Stories. So I have some thoughts on that as well, really quick. The first and second episode were at Murder House. It has two parts and it was kind of weird that I didn't mind it. It was bizarre how this high school student was extremely sexualized. I know the actress was obviously of age, but it was like a tad uncomfortable to watch. I love the twists in the first part. The second part is where it got really dumb. It seems like it was gearing more towards like younger kids with this high school drama, but with adult content. It was a little confusing and most of the episodes are like this, but it's still enjoyable. Well, most of them. The second story wasn't my favorite. It was very cheesy, uh, but it didn't quite capture that enjoyable, cheesy, satirical horror borderline comedy style story for me. I didn't like it, but I do wonder, is American Horror Stories canon? At the end of the second story, it seems that there's this apocalyptic event. I know that, what were they in, LA or something like that? But Netflix is worldwide, and that's where the movie that was, you know, causing people to go crazy was premiering on. If you're unfamiliar and don't care about spoilers, it's all about this movie that turns people crazy. And after they destroy the movie, there's a second one that comes out on Netflix and Netflix is worldwide. So I'm assuming shit starts blowing up because it was doing that in LA outside the window all over the world. But in the season apocalypse, the apocalypse is caused by nukes. So I'm quite confused. The two might coincide. I don't know. I'm going to research further to see if it's canon. We got a lot to cover. So that's a whole other rabbit hole I'll dive down. The next story was my favorite to watch with the fucking hype house thing. Absolutely hilarious. It's like stupid on purpose, but straddles the line so well. Where the second story failed to do that, this story knew exactly what it was. I could watch a whole show parodying the hype house shit. That was hilarious. It was sort of mirroring 
during Logan Paul's suicide forest. Uh, Not exactly, but there was definitely hints of it. And it was even mentioned. So if this is canon, Logan Paul exists in the American Horror Story universe. The same universe that Elsa Mars and TB Karen and time traveling witches exist in. Baller. I like it. Danny Trejo as Santa was absolutely magical. It was very gory. I loved it. I thought the mix was brilliant. But truthfully, the scariest part of this episode was being reminded that people like those in the Hype House, these frat boy rejects, uh, exist in this world. That is the real horror story. The next story titled Ball was another beautiful episode and it took a direction I didn't expect, but I loved it. I called the first twist, but the second twist I did not see coming. Did not see the ending at all. And weirdly enough, and I might sound like a fucking nut saying this, I don't ever feel icky watching something in the horror realm. I might get scared, I might get creeped out, but never like a deep icky darkness. But this episode, I don't know, man, it really made me feel fucked up. Like I truly felt affected and it was a great episode. I'm not taking away from that. It was just my personal experience with it. It hit me different. It felt truly evil. I felt like I needed to burn sage and cleanse the room and shower and meditate and focus on bright white light bursting out of me. Even talking about it, like I don't want to speak on it anymore. I know that sounds super fucking dramatic, but it turned me off to watching any further episodes of this. I'm going to, but it felt felt really evil. I didn't even get to watch the next episode. I needed a break. I switched over to America's Next Top Model because I needed to watch something completely mindless. Let's jump into some Netflix watching, starting with that crazy, wild, dark Bob Ross documentary. Rob. Yes, I said crazy, wild, dark and Bob Ross in the same sentence. I was nervous going into this because I thought it was painting, no pun intended, but awesome. Bob Ross is a villain. And I just can't handle that in 2021. Like, can we at least have Bob Ross? Can he at least be pure? Again, spoilers ahead. You've been warned in case you have not seen this yet. Right off the bat, the most insane part of this documentary, the title is Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Again, spoiler alert, this is a big one. His afro wasn't real. It was a fucking perm. And Bob referred to touching up the perm as having his springs tightened. How wholesome and cute is he? But yeah, the afro wasn't fucking real. The documentary goes into Bob Ross's backstory and explained how he was a military man that just wanted to paint. He started off as a protege for a painter, Bill Alexander, teaching workshops. And while he did classes... He met a woman named Ann Kowalski. Ann and her husband invested in Bob creating his own workshops because they really believed in him and saw great potential. And they also saw great potential for their wallets. During this time, the Ross family moved in with the Kowalskis because money was scarce and business wasn't that successful right off the bat. The Kowalskis were super sketchy in a lot of ways. And Mr. Kowalski was retired CIA who had some shady business connections. Lots of people actually backed out of the interviews for this documentary because they were scared of the well-connected and sue-happy Kowalskis. So that goes to show who we're dealing with here. PBS eventually picked up Bob Ross for the show Joy of Painting. And because of this, Ross's workshops filled up completely. But when business finally became successful, infighting between Ross and the Kowalskis began. Bob was the artistic side and the Kowalskis were very business minded. They just wanted to sell paint and canvases and brushes and whatnot, whatever lined their pockets. 
Bob didn't want to cut corners. He wanted great product with his name on it and nothing less. The Kowalskis essentially wanted to exploit him and his art and magic for profit. And Bob was not happy with this. After decades of success, Ross was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and some in his life suspect that the paint thinner he was using in every episode, just sort of smashing it around on his brush, might have caused it. Despite being deathly ill, Bob Ross sort of kept the, you know, the show must go on mentality. At this time, Ann Kowalski copied another painting show run by a husband and wife, the Jenkins. Ross and the Jenkins always got along beautifully. They supported one another. Bob was the landscape guy and the Jenkins were the flower painting people and he didn't mind pointing them in that direction if that's what they wanted to learn and vice versa. Anne wasn't inspired by the Jenkins. Let's get that clear. She outright copied the Jenkins paintings to make money from the machine and to push Bob Ross products and make even more money. She essentially wanted to control the whole art market that was very big at the time and used Bob to promote herself and there really was nothing he could do. That woman was extremely powerful, her and her husband. As Bob got extremely sick, he revealed to his son in the beginning of the partnership with the Kowalskis, there was a voting system. And when Bob's wife passed away, he lost a vote. And that's where everything started to go downhill. And now as he lay dying, Bob said the Kowalskis were trying to steal his name on his deathbed. The Kowalskis to this day reap the benefits of Bob Ross merchandise and Bob Ross's own son, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't see a dime of that. It's really crazy and an unexpected story that just cements how wonderful a man Bob Ross was. Many in the documentary that were closest to him say that he appeared on screen as he was in real life. That's who he was. And that was a relief to me because I was scared. I was like, please don't take Bob Ross from us. Don't taint him. He's so wholesome and good. He also had a quote in this documentary that really hit me. I was like, oh my God, I love that. I turned into an emotional little bitch as per usual. He said, light on light, you have nothing. Dark on dark, you have nothing. And I was just like, damn, I just love that. You have to have yin and yang. All about the balance. This next title, I'm gonna keep it brief. Um, He's all that. I almost turned this off after two minutes, not even, maybe 30 seconds. I was like, I can't do this. Uh, And I ended up lasting, I don't know how long it was into the film, but when I saw Kourtney Kardashian, I was like, no, we're, we're done. And I'm not hating because I'm a millennial gatekeeping the original She's All That. I'm not that dickhead who gatekeeps. And speaking of, let me rant for a moment. The psychology of gatekeeping is so fascinating to me. Like, why do people gatekeep? Why can't others like what you like? Will they not love it in the way it deserves? Why do you even care? It reminds me of assholes in the hardcore community, which if you're unfamiliar, it's a genre of music that I very much enjoy. And there's a group of people, as in any music genre, this is just what I'm, you know, familiar with. But they think that because they know the fucking band's blood type and when they took their last shit, that they enjoy the music more than you, poser, who only knows one album or one song. Why do you care? Does it make you feel superior? Is it a way to boost your self-esteem because you have nothing else to feel confident and secure in aside from your knowledge of a specific person, place, or thing? Is that what it is? Because two things. One, that's fucking ridiculous and you shouldn't feel that way. You have way more to love about yourself than a specific thing that you happen to have a lot of interest in. And two, 
Putting others down because of this makes you look like a fucking douchebag. If you love something so much, it must be incredible in your eyes. And that person, place, or thing, if you love it so much and it's so great, deserves attention from anyone and everyone. I don't understand gatekeeping. I just don't get it. I feel like it's weird. Just like standing people is weird. I don't, I don't get it. Anyways, I didn't hate this film because I'm gatekeeping the original story from the youth. I hate it because it was absolutely fucking wretched and I didn't finish it because I wasn't wasting my time frying brain cells. Next, This Is Pop. I watched the first episode of This Is Pop and I loved it. You know, I love these bright, quick documentary series. I find them so easy to watch and so informative for such a short running time. Episode one was all about boys to men being the successful formula for boy bands. It explained their very organic growth and how New Edition was the band that they were modeled after. And eventually, which I didn't know this, Michael Bivens, who's a member of New Edition, eventually went on to manage the boys. They were unique because they were marketed as the boys next door as young black men, which was so important and broke boundaries between different genres of music. And a lot of people don't give them enough credit for that. They moved freely in these different spaces like soul, hip hop, and regular pop, which set them apart from anyone else on the scene at that time. A fun fact I got out of the show was that boys to men barely liked End of the Road, which wow they have poor taste obviously end of the road is one of my favorite songs of all time i just thought that was so funny because they didn't think much of this song as they recorded it after being penned by babyface which iconic enough right there and it ended up spending 13 weeks on billboard at number one that beat out elvis and then and then and then as if just one number one single and beating elvis wasn't enough they went on to beat their own record with i'll make love to you and then and then and then beat it again with One Sweet Day, which I think was the number one reigning until Lil Nas X, if I'm not mistaken. I could be way off. 10 out of 10 for the first episode. I can't wait to watch the next episode with T-Pain. I heard he spills some tea on Usher being a bully to him about autotune, which is funny because... Usher, I'm pretty sure that's your song using some heavy auto-tune, so I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Leave T-Pain alone. Next, I finally watched Cruella, and it's on Disney+, Plus. it's not just Premiere Access now, and I gotta tell you, I get the love. I understand the love for this movie now. It looked absolutely beautiful and I liked the story and like I said, I get why people like it. I enjoyed it as a standalone retelling. I assume that's what they were trying to do because my Cruella from the 60s, I act like I'm a fucking 80 year old woman, my Cruella from the 60s, but that Cruella, she is not that. No, ma'am, absolutely not. She wasn't fucking rocking fake furs. That wasn't fake news. Nah, 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 I remember her bag was fur, her coat was fur, and she wanted those spotted pups. She is one of my favorite fictional characters of all time, the one from the 60s, the Cruella from back then, the OG. And it was just based off that one scene, that iconic one scene. 15, 15 puppies, how marvelous, how marvelous, how Take it, they're mongrels. No spots, no spots at all. What a horrid little white rat. That scene is what made me fall in love with Cruella. Also, if you're ever at Disney, I don't know if, you know, when they'll do character meetups again, but during the Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween party, meeting Cruella was 
one of my favorite meet and greets with any character. Usually I don't really care, but Jack Skellington and Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas at the gazebo and Cruella were my absolute favorite meet and greet characters ever. So in the future, if you're ever at a Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween party, definitely, definitely recommend seeing them. With the prices Disney's charging though, you might have to, you know, give up your firstborn or take out a fucking mortgage to go to that party or to even have a one day ticket. But if you do have the extra coin, it's a fun experience for sure. So with the new Cruella movie, I just kind of kept it separate from the 101 Dalmatians franchise. It was a lot darker than I expected. I forgot that it was PG-13. Serious spoiler alert. I'll pause so you can fast forward 15 seconds if you haven't seen the movie yet. Maybe not 15 seconds. 15 seconds is long. Use this time to fast forward if you haven't seen it. Just 20 seconds. Okay, so when the mom got mauled off the fucking cliff, by the Dalmatians. Like, wow, Disney. In true Disney, I have mommy issues fashion. Just bye-bye, mommy. No more mommy for you. But then, as if that wasn't enough, the villain turning out to be the evil real mommy? Like, way to just fucking level up the mommy issues. I thought Emma Stone was great. I don't know the actual actor's name, but I call him Robert Jewell. He was great too. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But all of the cast, really, they were amazing. And the soundtrack was brilliant. I was rocking with the soundtrack for sure. We're gonna move on to streaming news. We have quite a bit to cover, starting with Netflix. There is just so much. After weeks of negotiations, Netflix has closed a deal for a supersized fourth and final season of the missing plane drama Manifest following its cancellation by NBC. The announcement of the season four pickup by Netflix was made on so-called 828 day on August 28th when the series about a mystery of flight 828 is celebrated annually at 828 a.m. Pacific time. The final season of Manifest will be comprised of 20 episodes as is customary for series on Netflix. The 20 episode season will be split into multiple parts. Warner Brothers TV is not commenting, but I hear that the new deals for the cast whose original contracts expired in June include sizable pay increases. The Manifest actors all participated in the hashtag Save Manifest campaign, which helped keep the show at the top of the Netflix streaming rankings and ultimately bring it back from the dead. The pact with Warner Brothers TV also includes the existing three seasons of Manifest, which are currently available on Netflix in the US and will debut on the platform in markets around the world in the coming months. The pickup by Netflix will give fans answers after the cancellation by NBC made for a premature ending. We got our first taste of the upcoming film, The Guilty, and it looks, well, I should say it sounds absolutely insane. 911, what is the address of your emergency? I don't know. Give me the phone. Who's that? Is there someone with you? Yes. Is the person who didn't know you called us? No. He put me in the back of the van and I can't see anything. Have you been abducted? Jake Gyllenhaal stars in this white knuckle adaptation of the Danish thriller of the same name. Gyllenhaal is a 911 dispatch operator in Antoine Fuqua's remake of Gustav Moeller's Danish hit from 2018. Per the Netflix synopsis, the film takes place over the course of a single morning in a 911 dispatch call center. Call operator Joe Baylor, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, tries to save a caller in grave danger, but he soon discovers that nothing is as it seems, and facing the truth is the only way 
out. Gyllenhaal has been a major fan of the Moiler film since it hit the festival circuit back in 2018. Throughout the original movie's run, Gyllenhaal even served as a moderator during Q&As, and his interest in the movie ultimately led him to scoop up the remake rights. The combination of Gyllenhaal as well as the stacked cast, including Ethan Hawke, Riley Keough, Paul Dano, Peter Sarsgaard, Divine Joy Randolph, and Bill Burr, my guy, this sounds like an amazing movie. That is an interesting cast for sure. And it hits select theaters and Netflix on September 24th. Moving on to a Netflix classic now, I think it's safe to say that on season three, we finally got a trailer and a release date for you season three, and it looks amazing. People these days will name their kids anything to get attention. And despite your mother's background and your grandma's determination to refer to you as 40 reincarnated, I know better. A boy is not what we expected, and I would be lying if I said the thought of a mini-me was purely exciting and not without uh, challenges. Let's just say, I'm hoping you'll do as I say, not as I do. But for you, I can change. I'll be a man you look up to, a man you will be proud to call dad. So what to call you? A name that's strong but not intimidating. Classic but not basic. Literary, of course, because you will grow up in a house full of books. Henry, choosing your name is the first of a lifetime of decisions I'll make to give you the best life possible to protect you, to shape who you will become. Who are you going to be? I love this show and I'm so curious to see what Will and Love look like as parents. There was also a scene, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen season two of you, it was at the end of season two when Will seemed to have his sights set on the neighbor in a romantic sort of way. So we will see where that goes. I'm sure this season will be absolutely nuts. And it premieres on October 15th on Netflix. Catherine Zeta-Jones will play Morticia in the upcoming Wednesday Addams series on Netflix. Zeta-Jones will appear in a guest starring role as the iconic Addams Family matriarch in the series titled Wednesday. She joins previously announced cast members Jenna Ortega and Luis Guzman. Ortega will start as Wednesday while Guzman will play Gomez Adams, Morticia's husband. Wednesday, which received an eight-episode order at Netflix in February, is described as a supernaturally-infused mystery, charting Wednesday Adams' years as a student at Nevermore Academy. Wednesday's attempts to master her emerging psychic ability thwart a monstrous killing spree that has terrorized the local town and solved the supernatural mystery that embroiled her parents 25 years ago, all while navigating her new and very tangled relationships at Nevermore. At the earliest, we could potentially see Wednesday arrive in fall of 22. A Halloween-themed release would be very apt given the character of Wednesday Adams, but it's still a stretch. However, according to what's on Netflix, we will most likely see the series land in late 2022 or early 2023. Netflix picks up the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, according to The Hollywood Reporter. This is big news. The streaming giant has picked up global rights to the latest installment of Texas Chainsaw Massacre from Legendary Pictures. David Blue Garcia directed the horror movie, which shot last year in Bulgaria. The new movie takes place 
in a setting where Leatherface hasn't been seen or heard from since the events in the original film. Per Netflix and Legendary, the film seeks to pick up where the original film initially left off, bringing the most notorious horror franchise back to life in the same bold and provocative manner that it was first introduced to us. Chris Thomas Devlin wrote the script, and the cast includes Elsie Fisher from Eighth Grade, Sarah Yarkin from Happy Death Day to You, Jacob Lattimore from The Maze Runner, and Mo Dunford from Vikings. A new season of another Netflix fan favorite. On August 5th, Lily Collins confirmed on Instagram that filming for the second season of Emily in Paris had wrapped. Creator Darren Starr revealed in an interview with Oprah Daily that the same talent will feature in the second installment of the Netflix hit, while also hinting at what's next for Emily. Quote, she is going to be more of a part of the fabric of the world she's living in, he explained. She'll be more of a resident of the city. She'll have her feet on the ground a little more. She's making a life there. While Netflix has yet to confirm an official release date for the second installment of Emily in Paris, a late 2021 drop is likely with 10 episodes. It looks like we are going to see season five of Cobra Kai, according to DRP. We get this news before we even see season four of the show, which comes out in December. Netflix has not clarified whether the fifth season of Cobra Kai would also be the last. There are possibilities that it is, but the streaming service may prefer to leave that confirmation for later on once the new batch of chapters has already landed in its catalog. No official launch date has been announced for season four. Only the month of December has been mentioned by Netflix. Along with the start date being in December, we are also promised a groundbreaking All-Valley Karate tournament. Not much is known about the plot of the fourth season of Cobra Kai, but with Tori, played by Peyton Liss, promoted to the lead, we can definitely be sure that we will learn more about her and her motivations, which I'm looking forward to because she's kind of a bitch in the series and we don't want our lead characters to be bitches. We want them to be redeemed like Johnny. This is super exciting. Netflix is taking its first steps into the world of gaming. Yes, Netflix gaming. Relaunching two Stranger Things games for Android exclusively for subscribers, according to 9to5Google. Earlier this year, it was reported that Netflix would follow the path of Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon by entering the gaming space, including an interest in cloud gaming. As explained in a later investor letter, Netflix would not be making any immediate jumps into cloud gaming. However, instead, Netflix's first gaming forays would be limited to mobile games, a plan that is now coming to fruition. As spotted by Android Police, Netflix launched its gaming efforts in Poland on the 31st of August. Subscribers there will begin to see in-app recommendations for two previously released games by Netflix's Stranger Things franchise, specifically Stranger Things 1984 and Stranger Things 3 The Game. Speaking of Stranger Things, the fourth season is set to debut on Netflix in 2022, so we got some time to wait there. The trailer for the new Netflix original Chicago Party Aunt was released this week as the show is set to release next month and feature several Second City alumni, which is a comedy troupe, if I'm not mistaken. I learned all about that when I was doing my Jordan Peele YouTube video. Lots of funny people coming out of Second City. I cannot say this. Hold on. The Chicago 
party aunt Twitter account. I don't know why that's so difficult for me. Released the trailer through social media on Thursday with a caption that read, my show will be a lot like The Crown, but with way more Van Halen coming September 17th only on Netflix. I don't like Van Halen, but I love The Crown and I really like the producers of this and I like Second City, so it balances itself out. The new series centers around Chicago party aunt Diane Dunbrunsky. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the unique cast of characters that she interacts with in her hometown of Chicago as she stays true to her well-known mantra. If life gives you lemons, turn that shit into Mike's hard lemonade. Lauren Ash, who is best known for her work in Superstore, stars as the voice of Diane. This, again, it looks right up my alley. I am a hardcore fan of Big Mouth and this was produced by Titmouth. Yes, you heard that correctly. Titmouth. They also produced the fabulous Big Mouth. We got our first look at the new film Red Notice starring Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and Gal Gadot. In Red Notice, Johnson's federal agent character is on the hunt for Reynolds. Dwayne plays an FBI profiler who specializes in art crime. Thurber says, quote, he is on the hunt for Ryan Reynolds who plays the most wanted art thief in the world. Gal Gadot plays the mysterious figure in the art world, as they say, hijinks ensue, unquote. Red Notice had been set for a theatrical release from Universal Pictures. Netflix acquired the film from the studio in 2019 and set it for an exclusive release on their streaming platform. No potential release date has been announced. It was just a picture that we received. I'll post that on the pod's Instagram at NCQH podcast so you can see it as well. But with that cast, I mean, it must be dynamite. And to wrap up Netflix news, I am going to just throw some quick notable releases and exit coming and going for September on Netflix. Saved by the Bell seasons one through nine will be available on September 15th. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Jaws 1, 2, 3, and Jaws The Revenge coming just in time for Halloween. All of those will be available September 16th. However, we will be losing Penny Dreadful seasons 1 through 3 and all Karate Kid films September 16th. So if you want to get those in before Cobra Kai's new season, definitely do that before they leave. All Austin Powers films, Boogie Nights, Cradle to the Grave, and Insidious will be gone September 30th as well. Switching over to Hulu news, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez star in an all-new series on Hulu titled Only Murders in the Building. Via The Republic, the 10-part half-hour comedy updates the amateur detective genre to the era of the true crime podcast. It stars co-creator Steve Martin as Charles, an out-of-worked actor once famous for his role as a TV detective with a familiar, if verbose, catchphrase. Martin Short is Oliver, a formerly famous stage director whose flamboyance has outlived his income. Selena Gomez is Maybelle, a young woman of mystery. All three characters live in an enviable and artsy-fartsy New York City apartment building and share an obsession with a particular true crime podcast. They are all in the midst of discussing it when a mysterious death occurs right under their noses, prompting them to join forces in sleuthing and then recording their thoughts about it for an audience they've yet to develop. I love Selena as an actress. And of course, Martin Short, Steve Martin are icons in the comedy field. I'm happy to see her back with two legends. It sounds super funny and I can't wait to catch it. Just that quick little bit from Hulu. I do have some more notable exits and releases for September on Hulu. September 1st, all three I Spit on Your Grave movies will be just in time for Halloween, as well as the 1990 version of Stephen King's It, 
Corpse Bride, Sucker Punch, and Slumdog Millionaire. September 3rd will be the highly anticipated premiere of the D'Amelio show, if that is your jam. And the D'Amelios, if you're unfamiliar, they are TikTok stars. I know Charlie, she did like a Dunkin' Donuts thing, and Dixon, I think is her name, is like her sister. And I believe the parents, of course, have to get in there because if you're exploiting your children, why not exploit yourself too, right? Line everybody's pockets. And on September 8th, La La Land will also be available. I know that's a big movie for a lot of people. I've yet to see it. I just, I don't care about La La Land. It never called to me. Moving on to Paramount Plus. American Vandal creators Tony Yacenda and Dan Peralt have landed a series order at Paramount Plus for an esports mockumentary series called Players. Players follows a fictional pro league of legends team as they pursue their first championship after years of close calls and heartache. To win it all, they will need their prodigy, a 17-year-old rookie, and their 27-year-old veteran, oh my god, that makes me feel old, to put their egos aside and work together. Peralt and Yacenda, they've been extremely successful in the mockumentary format as they proved with American Vandal. That show won a Peabody Award for its first season, and it was also nominated for an Emmy for Best Writing in a Comedy Series. So obviously talent is not lacking there. And if you don't know, Riot Games League of Legend is the most played PC game in the world and it generates billions of hours of gameplay per year. The game is also the basis for the largest esport on the planet with the 2020 League of Legends World Championship Finals, generating a record-breaking 23.04 million average minute audience. It is currently in development and I did not see any release date as of yet, but I'm sure that will be a big deal. And of course, some releases and exits on Paramount Plus for September. The first, we see Friday the 13th, part three and the final chapter. The Omen, The Possession, Slumdog Millionaire again, and Punked season one, interestingly enough. And on September 10th, Casey Musgrave's Starcross, the film will premiere. Getting into Disney Plus now, according to Variety, Marvel Studios is searching for a Latino actor to be the lead in an untitled Halloween special for Disney Plus, Variety has confirmed. The special could be based on Werewolf by Night, which would denote two separate characters in the Marvel comic book universe. The first, Jack Russell, debuted in the comic Marvel Spotlight number two in February 1972. Russell has a family history of humans turning into wolves, but he uses his power for good and is able to remain aware of his transformations. The second character, Jake Gomez, was introduced into the Marvel Universe last year in the comic Werewolf by Night, volume three, number one, created by Taboo of the Black Eyed Peas, fun fact. It's unconfirmed if the character will be based on Werewolf by Night, but the casting search marks another effort in Marvel's expansion of representation. So that is very cool. Some quick news regarding the newest and highly anticipated Marvel film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings will not be coming to Disney Plus. While Disney opted to release Black Widow both in theaters and via Disney Plus using its premier access tier, an approach that was taken for other blockbusters for them as well, like Cruella and Jungle Cruise, Marvel Studios' latest original cinematic edition will be opening exclusively in theaters and will not be coming to Disney Plus. Doug Days recently premiered on Disney Plus and it makes for sentimental viewing after the tragic passing of Ed Asner over the weekend. There's less than an hour's worth of viewing material as Doug Day shorts run anywhere from six to nine minutes in length. The shorts take place following the events of 2009's Oscar winning movie Up. I have no doubt that Ed Asner and Pixar gave no less than 100% making me so I am super excited to watch. They look so cute. 
And some notable releases for Disney Plus this September. Friday, September 3rd, Happier Than Ever, A Love Letter to Los Angeles. A cinematic concert experience from Billie Eilish will premiere. You know what? I'd like to see a cinematic experience of Donda, like actually filmed with professional cameras and shit. I know Kanye is polarizing. And let me preface this with saying I don't co-sign his clown shit behavior. I do think he's sick and I think he needs a strong support system. And that's all I'm going to say regarding that. But and however, say what you want about the man's behavior and his personal life. But if we're talking about just the art, his art is fucking timeless. He is a rare artist who has that ability. Rare kind of shit. Michael Jackson is timeless. Queen, Radiohead, Outkast, Nirvana, Gaga. And I'm not a fan of the Beatles but they're timeless as well. I can give them that. I think this album Donda is beautiful. It is truly an art piece. I enjoyed what I saw from his live shows and the performance art aspect I thought was genius. I understand that a lot of people think it's demonic looking or strange and that's okay. Like I I could see where you're coming from. I respectfully disagree and I do not mean this in a condescending way. However, it might come off that way and I apologize, but I think some people can't see a deeper meaning behind things and they just see surface level. They don't dig any deeper. Not every song has to be a fucking Ariana Grande thank you next pop hit. That's not what Kanye does. I loved the Lauren Hill sample, the doo that thing sample. I was confused for a minute. I was like, did this shit just shuffle my music? What's going on here? And speaking of that, on Apple Music, it was really weird. Like the songs were disappearing in real time and then reappearing. Not just jail too either. Anyway, there were lots of themes similar to Jesus is King, which I expected. His religion is obviously very important to him and serves as an inspiration. So I don't mind that. It doesn't bother me. Keep my spirit alive, jail, and what was it? Believe what I say, I think it was called, were definitely my favorites off the album. The whole thing sounded cinematic and big and fucking beautifully produced. Like it doesn't get any better production wise. Everything I just said as well goes for Halsey's new album, If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power. I was blown away by that. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross produced it and holy shit, it is such a 180 from her former album Manic, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. It is so incredibly special to me, but I love how horror themed this album was and it's her interpretation of her journey through pregnancy and sort of purging all of those demons and her final thoughts on her past before becoming a mom. It was so well done and the way she went in this horror anxiety ridden direction rather than milk baths and pastel pregnancy. I thought it was great. It was extremely aware, extremely self-reflective. The first three songs, The Tradition, Bells in Santa Fe, and Easier Than Lying were fucking gold. The whole album is gold. It's different, it's weird, it's disruptive, it's haunting. Love, 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 but let me get back on the rails. I just went way off. Let's get back to Disney Plus. On Wednesday, September 22nd, Star Wars Visions, a series of animated short films celebrating Star Wars through the lens of the world's best anime creators premieres, and The Fault in Our Stars arrives September 24th. In Peacock news, we have limited news, but we have powerful news. Paranormal Activity 7, a new franchise documentary coming to Paramount Plus in time for Halloween. Paranormal Activity 7 will be the first film in the franchise since 2015's Paranormal Activity The Ghost Dimension. In addition to this latest installment, a documentary about the franchise is also in the works. 
The new film will be written by Christopher Landon from Happy Death Day and Freaky, who will also serve as executive producer with Steven Schneider. It's also revealed that this film will be one of three to four movies that Paramount Players, a sister studio to Paramount, will be presenting each year. Both Paranormal Activity 7 and the documentary will reportedly be out just in time for Halloween, so that is super exciting news. Season four of The Connors will debut with a special episode. The cast will be performing live, two separate performances, one for the East Coast and one for the West. ABC will be giving fans a chance to virtually be a part of the show for the episode in the You Could Be a Connor sweepstakes. If you want to enter, go to Be a Connor, Connor spelled C-O-N-N-E-R.com for more details. The live special will premiere September 22nd on ABC. A notable huge exit from Peacock in September is the Harry Potter films, which will be returning to HBO. And while we are on the subject, let me just toss around some more amazing titles coming to HBO in September because I don't have any news from HBO. On the first, we have Cloverfield, Evil Dead 1 and 2, The Goonies, and Transformers. Also, there's no crazy news from Amazon Prime, but we will see the premiere of Cinderella starring Camilo Cabello September 3rd. Excuse me, I had something in my throat. How rude. On the 1st of September, we also get 500 Days of Summer. Do the right thing. I know what you did last summer. And I still know what you did last summer. Jennifer's Body, The Karate Kid, Nacho Libre, The Omen will be here as well. Romeo and Juliet, The Social Network, and The Unborn, as well as the unrated version of The Unborn. And for Apple Plus, again, nothing crazy, but we have the season two premiere of The Morning Show on September 17th, which is probably my favorite thing coming out in September. As far as streaming goes, I am very excited about that. Thank you so much for listening today. I would like to spotlight the Lilith Fund, which is a nonprofit that supports the rights of all Texans to make their own reproductive choices, regardless of their income. On September 1st, the most restrictive abortion ban in the country became in full effect in Texas. SCOTUS could still rule to block SB8 in the coming days, but at this moment in time, as I'm recording, this is an absolute travesty. Please visit LilithFund.org to find resources and facts on what you can can do to access abortion in Texas if you need to. If you're outside of Texas and you want to get involved, they have options on how to volunteer your time as an operator for their helpline. And then, of course, there is the option to donate whatever amount you feel comfortable with if you so choose. If you'd like to follow the pod on Instagram, it's NCQH podcast. My personal Instagram is L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z. And like I mentioned in a previous episode, I released a collection of art and poems called Myocardium, and it is available on Amazon, and that link is in my personal Instagram bio. Stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. <laughs>